Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to the Kākāpō Files from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance and this is episode 22, Kākāpō Dads Revealed. It's been seven months since this record-breaking Kākāpō breeding season kicked off and it hasn't finished yet. One of the things that the Kākāpō recovery team from the New Zealand Department of Conservation has been hanging out for is the results of paternity testing. Who, they have wanted to know, are some of the mysterious dads. We'll catch up with Daryl Eason shortly and get the answers to that, and find out if any of the artificial insemination was successful. But first, back in episode 16, we heard from Jeanne Jacobs at AgriSearch about sexing kākāpō chicks. Here she is again to tell us how they have done the kākāpō paternity tests. Kia and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files, Jeanne. Hello. Nice to have you on the show again. We had you talking about sexing the chicks before. Now it's time to talk about how you go about determining the paternity or parentage of a kākāpō chick. The way we do that is we take the DNA of a little chick and we chop that up with what's called restriction enzymes. So it, it gets digested into very discrete bits of DNA. And we then do a process called genotyping by sequencing. So we sequence very short bits of DNA after it's been chopped up all across the genome. And then we get a profile for a particular sample. So we then compare the little bits of DNA from that one sample with all the other samples that we have. And from that, we deduct who the parents are. So we can construct what's called the genomic relationship matrix. And from that, we can see who the closely related animals are. So you can see siblings, you can see mum and dad. And there's a, a lot of statistics that go behind that to do this analysis. But it's still the fastest way and actually also the cheapest way to do this. So obviously you need to know the genetic code for mum and the genetic code for dad and then yes. you can see whether there are recognisable bits from, from the mum side and recognisable bits from the dad side? Exactly. And so we have in previous years already done GBS, genotyping by sequencing on all the living kākāpō, um, and that was AgriSurge in collaboration with uh, Bruce Robertson, Professor Bruce Robertson from the zoology department at Otago University. So we have those data, and based on the existing data that we have on all the living so all the potential mums and dads, we can now extract the information from the, from the children, from the little chicks, and determine who mum and dad are. We already know who mum is because mum laid the egg, but we don't always know who dad is. So this is an ever-expanding database then. So every year you plug in new chicks and then you get to see new relationships, and it builds quite a, a complex picture, doesn't it? 
It does. It does. And it actually also not just tells you who's mum and who's dad, but it also should, can, can give you an indication of how related other birds are. And so for a managed breeding program that likes to avoid things like inbreeding, etc., it's quite important to to determine the genetic variation of the complete population, especially because it's such a small population. It means that you have to be very careful which birds are going to end up together on an island and, have, and can potentially mate and have offspring. I'm curious about egg research doing this work because I think of you as working with agricultural animals like cows and sheep. So how does the kākāpō work fit into this other work that you do? You're absolutely right. We normally work with cows and sheep and clovers and grasses, etc. So this this particular project is uh, part of a MB program, so the Ministry of uh, Business, Innovation and Employment that funds science programs in New Zealand. And the program is called Genotyping by Sequencing. Well, it has a longer name, but we'll call it Genotyping by Sequencing. And we do mostly um, those agricultural species, some aquaculture species as well. But as a spin-off, we also started to do this kind of work in smaller populations where we want to answer more population genetics and conservation genetics questions. The program is meant to work for New Zealand Inc., so for universities and other CRIs other than ag research. And so this is one of very many smaller projects that we do under the umbrella of that of that research program. Still, it's very clearly linked, isn't it? When it comes to cows and sheep, you're trying to breed better cows and sheep. In a way, what we're trying to do here is perhaps down the track breed better kākāpō breed better kākāpō, but also to make sure that we explore the genetic variation as available and, as a result, get a good managed breeding programme. Thanks, Jeanne. Now it's time to catch up with Daryl Eason from DOC's kākāpō recovery team. Kia ora, Daryl, and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files. Hi, Ali. Great to be back again. Now, this episode I've been waiting for for quite a while because in this episode we are going to reveal who some of the dads are. So that's going to be super exciting. Are you excited? I am, yeah. It's always something I'm really keen to find out because the females, they tend to mate with multiple males. It's always a bit of a guessing game who the dads are going to be and it's always nice to find out. But we have to collect the samples in the first place. Usually we collect blood remnants from the hatched eggshell and if we don't get them, then we have to collect blood from a chick once it's grown up a bit and about three or four weeks old. So it's a long process by the time we collect all the samples and then get them processed in the lab. So you'd think it would be really obvious that if one female mated with one male, that might be the the dad. But there have been occasional surprises in the past when somebody snuck in and mated with the female without you realising. Have you had any of those sneaky matings this year? No, not at all this year. But then again, some of the females mate with two different males. Some of them with three different males, so it's those ones that we're very unsure about. So that's where it gets really exciting. So how many of those females did you have who mated with several males? Probably about a third of them. So who did the dads turn out to be in those cases? Take it away, Daryl. There was a, one interesting bird, Tumeki, mated with both Teatapo and Boss, and she had four chicks. And of her four chicks, one was fathered by Boss and the other three by Teatapo. And we'd never had that before. 
the only time we've had mixed paternity broods have been following AI in the past. And generally, two-thirds of the time, it's the, the last male that mates who's the father. Um, I haven't looked at it thoroughly this year yet, but birds like Tutakor and the Kingi, whoever they mated with, they tended to be the father, and it didn't matter if they mated first or last. They tend to be the most successful male in that partnership. Wow, so we've got a bit of stretching of the rules going on this year. In terms of successful males, we obviously had breeding on two islands, on Anchor Island and on Whenua Hau. In each case, who was the most successful male? Who fathered the most chicks? Well, the most on Whenua Hau was Komaru. That's interesting because he was just an eight-year-old bird, his first breeding season. So he ended up with ten living offspring. Ten living offspring in his first year? Yes. (laughs) That is extraordinary because it usually takes the males a few years to get into the swing of things, doesn't it? Absolutely, and this is the first year that we've had a bird less than ten years old producing offspring. So we had both Komaru and Tūrako, eight years old, producing 15 chicks between them. So Tūrako got five, that's amazing. They were both on Whenua Hau? That's right, Whenua Hau. So Komaru was the standout with ten birds. The, the next most was five for Boss, Te Arapo and Tūrako. What about on Anchor? On Anchor, Horton had ten chicks. Takatimu had eight, so did Takingi. Yeah, so interesting. In the past, there's been some standout males, and I'm thinking, I always think fondly of Felix, but I know that I think Blades and Boss were other big hitters in the past. They're being a bit superseded by the new generation. They are really. Well, Felix is now on Hauturu, so he didn't get a chance to mate at all this year. I think we've had about 12 living offspring from him in the past, so we're giving other males a chance to breed. And Blades is by far the standout. I think he's had 19, well, we've got 19 living offspring from him. And as a result of that, after last breeding season in 2016, we moved him to... Hoturu as well. So we really don't want to be overpopulating the new generation from just two or three males. We, we want to mix them up and have most males contributing fairly equally. So that strategy seems to be working? It seems to be. The disappointing thing this year was there were very few of the founder males from Stewart Island that, well, even mated this year, let alone produced offspring. So Boss and Basil were the only founders that had offspring this year. So five from Boston, four from Basil. There are always some Stuart Island males who either haven't bred at all or have only bred poorly, and they did the same again this year? Yes, unfortunately. So there's about four or five of the Stuart Island males that have not bred at all, and I'm very keen to get them to breed. And so we're working hard to try and get their chances improved by making them the older birds. But again, even the young birds just were, were more successful in attracting the mates this year, so that, that in itself isn't working. One of the things that I know you test, you don't just test paternities of the chicks that hatched, you also look at embryos that died. Um, did you see any interesting trends in that? Have you looked at that? It just tended to be embryos from a mix of most of the different males that ended up dying. Although there were dead embryos from Manu, 
myrrh and moss, just one or two between each of them, and but we had no living chicks from either of those three males. Oh, that's disappointing. Gulliver, I take it, you were already pretty confident that he had fathered Suzanne's chicks. That still holds? Yes, indeed. Yeah, that was fantastic to, to confirm that. I was pretty sure since Suzanne only mated with Gulliver and we did follow up an AI with Gulliver's semen as well, Suzanne. Not that we'd know if that worked or not. But yes, all three of Suzanne's chicks are Gulliver's offspring. So Richard Henry, the Fjordland male, finally has some grandchildren, apart from Kuiya's. Absolutely, that's that's fantastic. And, And Gulliver's pretty special too because he's the only living bird that carries two important MHC genes belonging to Richard Henry. So they, of course, are immunity genes, that, and we don't have much diversity of them in the kākāpō population, so it would be good to hopefully be passing them on and into the future generation. Are you going to look for that? Are you going to look at whether those chicks have those genes? I suspect we will in time, but we haven't looked at that just yet. Remind me, how many chicks has Kuya got? Well, she had four in 2016, and she had three this year, so seven now. Good on her. Now, we've talked about Komaru and Horton holding the records this year for the greatest number of chicks. Just on the flip side of that, which females have been most successful? Overall, of all the females that have bred over time, Flossie is the outstanding producer. Not that she's bred in the last couple of years because she's been living on Hauturu. She's got 12 living offspring. This year, it would be Waikawa that ended up with five live chicks out of eight eggs that she laid. That's a pretty good tally for a female and another vindication of your decision to do the double clutching. That's right, yes. So she ended up with three chicks from the second clutch and two from the first. Seven of her chicks hatched overall. So she's, she's doing extraordinarily well, actually. Now, the big moment, artificial insemination. Remind us why you're doing it. Well, there's two reasons, and it's to try and retain genetic diversity because, as we talked about just previously, not all males get to pass on their genes because some of those Stuart Island founders, for instance, just aren't aren't getting the chance to mate. So we don't want to lose that potential. And also, the more frequently a kākāpō mates, the higher fertility rate of the eggs. So if if a female mates just once, which is usually about half of the birds, they have about a 48% fertility rate. But if they mate with two males, they're more likely to have in the 90% success rate. So we don't know how to encourage them to mate multiple times with different males, but if we can use artificial insemination, we have that chance to, to provide that competition. Remind us when you started doing artificial insemination and whether you've been successful in the past. So we first started trialling that in 2008 but that was a very small breeding season so we didn't have much opportunity and then in 2009 we inseminated five females and we were successful with two of those birds and we still have three chicks from those inseminated eggs, which, of course, have bred this year. But 
all the work we've done since has been unsuccessful in 2011 and 14 and 2016 as well. We didn't manage to do many birds in 2011 and 2014 because they were very small breeding seasons, I think two in each season. But then we did about 15, I think, in 2016. Might have been only 13. Um, but none of those were successful. And we've been really working hard this year to understand what is it that we have to do to get it right. We put a lot of effort into it this year, and we were really lucky that Meridian really backed us and, and gave us extra finance to help us out, and that gave us the opportunity to get four artificial insemination experts out from Gießen University in Germany, and they helped with the AI this year, and we managed to inseminate 13 females and two of them twice, so 15 inseminations. And we tried a few different options. So we, we tried different diluents that we diluted the semen with and some without dilution because we wanted to make sure that, as in 2016 when we did everything the same, if that was the wrong thing to do, we didn't want to find out that we had no results this year. So I think we tried three different diluents as well as neat semen that wasn't diluted at all. And we tried variation in the holding positions of the females. And the big reveal, da 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 <laughs> Did you have any successes? We did. You Finally, did? After, after 10 years again, we had success. So I'm very pleased to say that we were successful with three females, three of the 13 females. Not quite as many as I'd like, but as I said, we tried a few different methods, so that that's, um, makes quite a difference there. So we were successful with Nora, Cindy and Margaret Marie. Excellent. And the great news is that Sinbad was the father of Nora's chick, and Stumpy was the father of Margaret Marie's chick, and Merv with Cindy, although unfortunately both of Merv's eggs died early on. Oh, no! <laughs> so that was very sad because he's a founder from Stewart Island and we've got no progeny from him at all, so I've been working hard with Merv to try and get some offspring from him, but it wasn't quite to be close, though. But again, those eggs unfortunately died at about eight days old, the very standard age of early embryo death. Most of the eggs that die early on die at about eight days old for some reason. So two living chicks? Yes, two living chicks. So I think Margaret Marie laid two eggs and the first egg was very small and that was infertile, but her second egg was more normal and that hatched and is still alive. And Nora laid three eggs. And her first egg hatched and died at about four days old. And her second embryo was an early embryo death that, at about eight days old again. That was actually fathered by Tutacor, who she mated with naturally. So the third egg was Sinbad's. And um, we have that chick. Unfortunately, that's one of the chicks in hospital at Dunedin with a granuloma in his lung, but I'm hopeful that 
he will be improving. So Nora and Sinbad's is a boy chick? I yes. take it from that? And what about yes. Margaret Marie and, and Stumpies? Margaret Marie and Stumpies is also a boy. So are you happy about that? I am, yes, yes. I'm very happy that we've got a chick from Sinbad. The only chicks we've got from Stumpy now are from AI. So we got two chicks from Stumpy in 2009 with AI. And he mated with, I think, three different females this year, Hockey, Zephyr, and Solstice for three clutches. So I think 13 eggs, and they were all infertile. So there's nothing and wrong with his sperm. It may just be that he hasn't got his technique in the field down right. I think so, because every time I've looked at his sperm, it's very good, high-quality sperm, and the AI success is, is, is a backup of that. But there's something he's doing not quite right. <laughs> so Sinbad is, of course, Gulliver's brother. He's a Fjordland baby, so that Nora Sinbad chick, that's a delight to me because that's a Wynn dynasty baby from Nora yes. and a Fjordland dynasty baby from Richard Henry. Yes, yes, indeed. Oh, it's fantastic. It's very good. And, and, and Sinbad did mate the one time with Tohu and his eggs were infertile. So again, he might have poor technique as well. And being partially imprinted hand-read bird, I wouldn't be surprised if his technique's not great. You talked about using different ways of collecting the sperm, you know, putting it in different kinds of diluents. Do you have any sense, or is the sample size too small to tell whether one of your techniques was way better than any of the other techniques? Two of the successful inseminations this year were from neat undiluted semen and the other one in, with Nora was in, with the same diluent that we used in 2009 that was successful whereas the other two diluents that we used were unsuccessful Well you have learnt some good lessons then? Yeah we definitely have learnt lessons and we've also modified the hold from a fairly vertical position with head down to laying on their back and that just Expose the oviduct a lot better with a lot better visualisation so you can see exactly where you're inseminating well and I think there could well have been confusion with the surprisingly large urethra openings as well causing some confusion Oh you think you might have been sticking it in the wrong hole <laughs> So once, once we held them in the different positions and could see clearly all the openings it made quite a difference. So we may have been doing it a little bit wrong in some situations, and it was interesting. The team from Germany were quite surprised about some of the, the slight anatomical differences between kākāpō and other parents. So, yeah, they were quite baffled for a little while. But you eventually got there. So fantastic news that the artificial insemination worked. Quick catch-up on just where things are at. You've still got 72 living chicks, 142 living adults. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think we're past the worst of the aspergillosis outbreak. We haven't seen any new cases since early May, I think. And we have been sending several birds back from hospital. Most of them, admittedly, those birds that were sent up with uncertainty on, over whether they had aspergillosis or not, and, and they didn't. But we have just found out 
in the last week that two of the birds at Auckland Zoo have resolved their aspergillosis granulomas. So that's fantastic. So they've had small granulomas that have completely gone now. So those two birds, Kwehi 2A and Hanimoa 3A, will almost be ready to return to the island. And I think most of the birds that have had repeat CT scans now have shown good evidence of their granulomas reducing in size after six weeks of treatment. So it's looking really good. So I think early this week, the the, the four birds in, at Dunedin Wildlife Hospital will have their repeat CT scans, and that's where Zinban's chick is. So hopefully later this week we'll have results how they're doing. They all look very good within themselves, but you just can't tell how bad it is internally. I understand the last three hand-reared chicks went back to Whenuaho last week. Who were those chicks? There were Ihi and Pura's chicks. So I think two from Pura and one from Ihi and two from Ihi and one from Pura the week prior as well. So six have been sent out over the last couple of weeks. And they're having fun out in their weaning pen, are they? They are. They're enjoying being outdoors. They certainly were keen to get out of their pen, that's for sure. They're small and inside pen anyway. So they're starting to get used to the weather now, the wind and the rain, and they're in the process of being weaned now. So it won't be very long now before they're going to be released. Well, it's great that things are finally picking up, that the aspergillosis crisis seems to be tailing away. It's fantastic news that at least two of the birds that have definitely had it have been given the all clear and can come home again. Yeah, it's fantastic. It does give them more of a sense of relief now and so good to see that the birds are resolving their issues. Yeah, it gives me much more confidence that a lot of the birds should be okay. I mean, we still definitely have one quite ill bird up at Auckland, SB2B, is on and off again with her difficult respiration problems, but some days she looks fantastic. So we'll just have to keep treating and see how she gets on. Thanks, Daryl. Gosh, that's a lot of news. I think the big thing for me is that this year there are seven kākāpō chicks with Fiordland genes. That's almost 10% of this year's chicks. Amazing. OK, that's it for this episode of The Kākāpō Files. The Kākāpō team tell me it could still be a good month or even two before they announce the official chick tally for the year. They're waiting for the youngest birds to fledge and for birds to return from veterinary treatment. I'm not sure when I'll be back. Stay subscribed to the podcast anyway as I have a treat for you later this year. But don't be surprised if you don't hear from me for a while. You can find the podcast at rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō or as RNZ Kākāpō Files on most podcast apps. If you're on Twitter, follow Andrew Digby or myself for regular updates or follow Kākāpō Recovery on Facebook. Thanks as always for your company and your keen interest. I'm Alison Balance. Bye for now. Matewa. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.